Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 8th, 2017, and this is episode 2060 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, and we're going to talk about a dark subject today. We're going to talk about darkness, uh, dealing with darkness. I realized yesterday when I covered... Uh, the texting suicide case, and I read all of the texts, I put all of the emphasis on the guilty party, the woman who convinced the boyfriend to kill himself. I didn't put a lot of emphasis on what he had to say. I'll mention it a bit today, but it's not going to be a rehash of that at all. It's not only going to be about potential suicide. It's going to be about depression and just darkness in our lives. Because someone doesn't have to have like clinical depression for darkness to screw their lives up or to make their lives unfulfilling or to hold them back from what they're really capable of doing. But in the end, taken to the extreme, suicide is where it leaves, leads. And, and do, do you, I want to give you like an understanding of why we're going to go into this show today. I've been doing this show nine years, and it, the, the, these types of topics have come up in pieces and segments and parts, but I've never dedicated a show fully to it. I've always tried to be a very inspiring show, but the show is also the survival podcast, which means we need to talk about threats to our existence, whether that be maybe the overblown concern about North Korea, uh, or whether that be the maybe underblown concern about how screwed up the United States economy is, or whether that be diseases and illnesses. And one of the places we might look for that is what are the leading causes of death? If you want to survive, you might want to familiarize yourself with at least the top ten leading causes of death, and say to yourself, self, is there anything I can do to help prevent them? And I think a lot of us have gotten into the, the, the mentality of self-defense. Get a gun, get some training, arm ourselves, and say, hey, if someone tries to kill me, I will kill them first. And I actually don't see anything wrong with that. I see that as basic, common-sense self-preservation. If more people did it, there'd be less people killed. There, there is no doubt about that. If trying to hurt and harm people got you dead quick, more often, criminals would think more about it before they did it. And there's been studies done that show that. But we, I, mean, I think if I was doing a show today, how to defend yourself when somebody's trying to kill you, people would be like, well, that's a survival topic. Okay. Uh, last year was about 15,000 murders in the United States. That's a lot. Now, per 100,000, it's one of the lowest in the world, but it's a lot. I mean, it's a legitimate concern that somebody might try to kill you. What if I told you there was about 45,000 suicides on average a year? Meaning that you are three times more likely by the numbers alone to end your own life than to have somebody end your life through malice and intent. Think about that. Suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in America today. So we are going to dedicate part of the show to that, but we're going to focus more on dealing with the thing that leads there, which is darkness in our lives and an inability to deal with it. And in spite of that, I'm hoping that today's show will not be depressing. I don't want to do a, the suicide hour or something like that. Um, I want to inspire you and give you reasons not just to live, and, and by God, if you're someone that's thinking about this, I want you to get help, and I certainly want to be part of the reason, if you're hearing me, to live, is, is to continue. 
But I also want to inspire many of you who, who maybe would never do this, never get to that extreme, but your life just sucks, and you've accepted that's the way it is, and maybe you blame your parents or you blame your past or whatever, to rise up and live your life like it's worth living. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Hey folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But of course, you know me, I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. Before we get into it, speaking of suicide, you're watching someone take a long time to commit suicide in Caligula in the year 40 A.D., current, gov uh, current emperor of, of uh, Rome. And I'll remind you that yesterday uh, we talked about how he went to Germania and um, charged some of his own troops and then ran home and when the real army show showed up, trampled some of his own troops running away, uh, but declared victory after that. So what happens in the year 40? Have we learned anything yet, uh, young Caligula? No. Uh, contributed by David Verne in the year 40, the invasion of Britain. After his victory in Germania, Caligula has decided to launch an invasion of Britain. The Britons began preparing for the first Roman invasion of Britain since Julius Caesar's expedition 95 years before. When spring came, Caligula lined his soldiers in battle formation on the beach facing the English Channel and had his catapults fire into the sea. He then ordered his soldiers to go collect all the seashells from the beach and bring them back to Italy as soldiers of war. Once he arrived back in Rome, he celebrated his dual triumph to commemorate his success in Germania and Britain and had seashells displayed as treasure. <laughs> okay, my take by David Verne. When Julius Caesar invaded Britain in 55 BC, he failed to conquer the island. 
The Romans never liked the sea, and Caesar lost many ships and soldiers in attempting the crossing. His only success was installing a proper was installing a puppet king on one of the southern tribes. As soon as he left, the tribe overthrew the king. Yeah, Britain's not big on being conquered. Um, do not take this as a defense of Caligula. The guy was a nut, and we're soon going to see him get what's coming to him in in in, in the history segment. However, if you're going to fight a war, that's the best win-win scenario for fighting a war there is. Throw some rocks in the sea, pick up some seashells, and go home. In other words, don't fight a war that you don't need to fight. Don't go looking for a battle that's not necessary. The best wars that we've had in the history of our country are the ones that we've never fought. The fact that we never went to war with the Soviet Union was a good decision. But sometimes wars come to you, and when they do, you must fight them, whether they're real wars or metaphorical wars. Think about that as we go through today's show. All right, I want to start out with why we need to delve into this topic today. We have to delve into this topic mostly because none of us are immune to it. Now, I know that you might say, well, I'm immune to suicide, Jack, and we'll get to how that's not exactly the case in just a second. But... I'll concede that for you in the intro, okay? Yeah, you're not going to do it. Barring some extreme circumstance, which might open you more to the understanding that you could be led there. But it doesn't mean you won't deal with darkness. It doesn't mean that you won't deal with the baggage of your past. It doesn't mean that you won't have self, self-doubt. It, won't mean, it doesn't mean that you won't fall into a funk. It doesn't mean that you won't have adversity in your life that sometimes you'll be unwilling to stand up against or will use it as an excuse. It doesn't mean that at some point in your life you may not go through a series of bad happenings and events and close in on yourself and screw your life up even if you don't end it. It doesn't mean any of those things can't happen to you just because you won't take the final step of that path, which is ending your own life. And, and glad you don't, because here's the good news. No matter how far you walk down that path, if you're still breathing and you don't put an end to it, you have the ability to do something good with your life. I have seen people in prison for the rest of their life do something good with their life. People with no chance of getting out, I've seen them do some good with their life. If they can, you can. There's a man, I don't remember his name, but he ended up paralyzed I think he had Lou Gehrig's, I'm not sure. But he was a college football coach, and he ended up continuing to coach. They basically had him on a board that he was tied to, like with wheels like a dolly. And his wife would read his lips to understand his instructions to the rest of the coaching staff, and he continued to coach college football like that. Look at Stephen Hawking. Okay? Still making amazing contributions to science. He's not even supposed to be alive at this point. And talk about a guy that can't really do anything for himself, except think still. And that little robot voice that you hear in it, you know, when him talking in, like a sentence takes like four hours of, of his eye movements and whatnot to convey that so that the thing will talk. It's not like you can say, hey, Steve, what's going on? You can say, I am fine, how are you? It doesn't work that way. I think a lot of people are not aware of that. So if these people in these extreme circumstances can continue to do something good, then most of us, no matter how bad we think we have it, we have opportunity. 
But it doesn't mean we won't be affected by these things. And it doesn't mean we can't get into a state where we reach a place where maybe we don't go any further down, but we never come back up. And that's not good, and that's not a way to live. Before we go on, I do want to dispel a myth. The myth of, I would never kill myself. I've been known to say that. I even said in a psyche vow once just to mess with the guy. This was a, a, a military psyche vow. That if you ever considered suicide, I went, absolutely effing not, right? Because yeah, you sound pretty convinced about that. I'm like, yeah. And he says, well, tell me more about that. That's a classic psychologist, psychiatrist statement, right? Tell me more about that. And I said, well, if there's anybody in my life that's ever making my life miserable enough that somebody needs to die, it's not going to be me. And I was being a smart aleck, but, but there's a little bit of truth to that, right? Like, if I, you're at a point where I got to take a life to be happy, it's not going to be mine, okay? Because that's not going to solve my problem, right? Um, and, and funny enough, that didn't set any bells off for the army or something. I guess they do have you there for the intent of killing people eventually, or possibly anyway. But um, the truth is, I'm not immune to the concept that I could take my own life. I'll give you a couple scenarios. September 11th, and you're on one of those upper floors, no matter what you believe caused the problem, whether you think it was the government did it, it was a conspiracy, it was exactly, it doesn't matter, like, ignore that. You're up on one of those floors, and you're about to be burned to death. And a lot of those people jumped. Do you think they were people that got up that day and thought, I'm going to kill myself today? And before I kind of extrapolate on that, I'm going to go to a couple more. Um, let's say that you're, you're diagnosed with end-stage cancer, and it's bad. It's, it's through your whole body. And you are in pain. And no matter how much they give you medication, whatever, you are in pain. And you know you have several days at most left, but several days of pain. And then maybe a couple more days of being completely unconscious and struggling to breathe while people tend to you and wait for you to die. People face that all the time and don't end their lives. Tell me you wouldn't at least consider it an option. There's no hope. There's no miracle cure. They're not going to squirt shark piss up your nose to save your life or something. It's, 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 it's the end of the road. And all you have is pain and misery for the end. But you can take control. Two totally different scenarios. Two totally different scenarios. You're in a situation where somebody has control over you and they're going to kill you. And you know fighting is suicide. But you're still going to fight. Because it's all you have left. Three totally different scenarios. What do they all have in common? Because this is the root of the whole thing. I'm not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a professional counselor. Nothing I should I, I say should be taken as such things. But I do believe I've examined this piece of human condition enough to understand the actual key to what leads a person into depression and ultimately to take their own life. It is the despair of having no future. That's it. And the deeper that despair comes, the closer people come to being willing to end their own lives. And two people faced with the exact same thing, it absolutely does not mean there is no hope for the future. One person will see clearly that this really sucks, but I still have a future. And the other person will look at it and feel like they don't have one. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about the young man that killed himself from yesterday's show with the texting suicide case. 
If you go back and listen to it or go look up the article and read just his side, you will see him basically screaming out to her saying, give me anything to have hope in. And instead, she took it away. She manipulated him to the point where he took the logical conclusion. But when he was saying things like, I'm worried about my family. Well, any any compassionate person dealing with someone in that state saying they were worried about their family would have said, Aha! Yes, your family needs you. But it said, she said, don't worry about your family. I'll take care of them. I think they'll accept this and they'll move on with their lives. I don't want to go off into putting her, coming down on her again, but do you understand what leads to, when you watch the psychology of what's going on there, this is what leads people first into depression, and then if it continues deep and far and long enough to the point where they're willing to end their own lives. The lack of hope for the future. It will never be any better than it is right now, and I'm miserable. Remember Office Space? Peter Gibbons, when he goes and talks to the counselor at the beginning that puts him into the hypnotic state and the counselor dies right right there, and that leads the whole show. If you've never seen Office Space, you've got to watch it. No, that is not The Office, which my wife always gets confused by, right? The Office is a sitcom. Office Space was a movie from the 90s. You've got to go see it if you haven't seen it. You can probably see it for free on YouTube. I'm sure you can find it on Netflix or whatever. It's on TV all the time. Anyway... He says to this counselor something to the effect of, I, basically he's miserable, and when I wake up in the morning, I know that today is going to be worse than yesterday, and tomorrow is going to be worse than today. So any day that you see me, that's literally the worst day of my life. And this guy is supposed to be a counselor, says, wow, that's heavy. Right, And he puts him into this hypnotic trance and makes him just let go of everything and not give a shit. And his life gets better. You know what? There is some wisdom in that. There is some wisdom in that. Learning to let go. But we'll get to that. But it's, it's that mindset. That's fiction emulating fact, right? When, when you get to the point where you feel that my life can't get any better, in fact, it'll probably be worse tomorrow, It may not be enough to take you to the point of suicide, but it's enough to take you to the point of, well, why the hell do I even care? And it's enough to start a lot of self-destructive behaviors that if they don't end your life can ruin it. And if we can understand that, then we can do something about it. Because whenever we end up in that mental state, we can go back to the anchor of, my life can be better than it is. And I'm not saying it'll help everybody all the time, but it'll help most of the people most of the time, in my opinion. If you just can learn to believe that, that there are actions I can take to improve my state in the world, then you will be better at dealing with the darkness that we all deal with. I want to share a little bit about my past and a friend of mine, um, in that order, and tell you a little bit about some of the darkness in my past. I've kind of alluded to some of this stuff, and I'm not going to go real deep, and it's not going to take very long And this is not a Jack Pity party thing or anything like that. I just want you to understand that, like, when people look at me and my life and my business career and stuff like that, and, you know, a lot of it is you take all the positive and you market that because that is, that is how you market yourself as a personality unless you're an idiot. 
But, you know, I don't sit around and, and, and put in my, my marketing, hey, you know, my childhood sucked. But let's, let's talk a little bit about this. My mother's a drug addict. My mother's a drug addict. I remember the last time I saw my mother, it had been 10 years since I had seen her. And we had moved back to Pennsylvania, my wife and my son at the time. This is early 2000s. I think it actually was like 2001. And uh, she wanted to see me, and I agreed, and she came over to my father's house. And uh, when she walked in, she looked 30 years older than her age. Not that I remembered her, than her age. And all I could think when I looked in her face was, you've been on meth for the last decade. You've never slowed down. Meth teeth, the whole nine yards. And she ends up eventually speaking to my wife without me knowing it. And the subject about moving comes up. And my wife talks about how hard it is. And I had just gotten this incredible new opportunity. This is when I went to work for Microtest. And eventually Fluke bought us and I ended up working for Fluke. And I was going to be, there's one thing she was right. I was going to make damn good money, better money than I've ever made in my life. And that's what she said. But, you know, he's going to be making so much money. Unfortunately, I didn't hear this because that probably would have caused a scene because I would have probably thrown her out of the, the house physically. But what I got out of my wife was by the time it was over with, her belief was that now that I was back with big air quotes around it and I had this great new job, I would be able to help her out. She was in it for money. That's why she showed up at all. I have two sisters. I never hear from them unless they need money. My father was an alcoholic and a workaholic. Worked seven days a week. He took one day a year off. That was Christmas Day. And he took a half day a year off on New Year's Day. Otherwise, I grew up without my father in my life. I had some good grandfathers. They had their issues too. The best person I had in my life as a child... The person who was really a mother to me was my grandmother, Rose. This was my mom's mother. She died when I was 11. And she was in her early 60s. It was young for her to die. We've all dealt with losing grandparents. But this was basically the woman who raised me. And then I had nothing. When we moved to Pennsylvania, my other grandmother, she was a good woman in her way. But she was absolutely one of these people completely indoctrinated and brainwashed by the church. And everybody was going to hell, and everything was a sin. And she spent most of her life either cleaning the house, cooking food, or praying the rosary for everybody's soul because she was convinced we were all going to hell. Having a person you love convinced that you're going to hell is not good for a positive self-image. On top of all this, while there wasn't a word for it back then, looking back, clearly I can see that I had Asperger's, so I was on the autism spectrum, I guess technically I still am. I don't think you ever get off of that. You learn to deal with it. So I had problems with empathy and understanding people. In some ways, it may have been a shield because if you don't feel empathy properly for others, you tend not to feel it for yourself. But that creates its own world of problems. And I could go on, but I won't. But I won't. I'll just tell you that I have no relationship whatsoever other than a little bit by text and Facebook with my entire side of the family. That's a lot to lose. And I'll also tell you that, you know, most people today know that I'm a deist. And I think a lot of you guys know that I did have a long-term interaction with the Methodist Church as, as basically a teacher within the Methodist Church, and I'll leave it at that. 
and I grew up Catholic, and I ended up leaving Catholicism, but I never lost my faith in, in the way that you would take that term. And eventually, I end up basically being this teacher in the Methodist church, which I called Catholic light, and it kind of is. And eventually I realized, I don't believe any of this. And I know many of you are practicing Christians. I don't put you down for your faith. I realized, let me say this again, I realized I don't believe any of this. And all it was for me was an outlet for teaching because I could learn it all and I could make it understandable because that's one of my gifts, but I don't believe any of this at all. And you can't make yourself believe something. So then in the only tangible way to put it, I lost God. And it took years to find out there was an option other than something like a revealed religion. I discovered spirituality. I didn't know how to put it, but eventually I found deism, and I said, that's a word that describes what I've always been. There is some creator to all of this, but I don't think he's keeping score. But I grew up brainwashed, as far as I'm concerned, to believe these things. And when you lose something like that, because you just did, you've lost that too. So it's not like I have this charmed life that everything just laid down in front of me and gave me what I wanted. And I'll say this, thank God for that. I think with some of my personality issues, that would have been the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. I think if I would have won the lottery like when I was 21, I probably would have been dead by 25. I really do. So that leads me to my friend. I have this friend who I served in the military with. I met him when he was, uh, I think we were both 19 when I met him. He was either 18 or 19. I've known him since then. I'm 45 now, so this is a long-term friendship. But I have to tell you that if I get an email or a phone call from somebody and it says that your friend has, has, has chosen to end his life, I will be sad. I will shed tears for this brother of mine. But I will not be surprised. In some ways, I'm surprised that he's made it this far. This is a man who, when he was 20 years old, I remember him saying to me, I'm afraid I'll die alone. And I've watched him, in spite of being incredibly gifted with women, especially when he was younger, before he kind of lost his looks and all, do every damn thing he can to make that prophecy come true. And you shouldn't even be worried about dying, let alone dying alone when you're 19. He's been divorced twice. He's been on the phone to me multiple times in the exact same scenario that we talked about yesterday, telling me he just doesn't think it's worth living anymore. And what I've always tried to do is give him hope for his future. And that's all that I can do. And as far as getting help, he's had help multiple times, and he continues to get help. And I think those two things have really helped keep him alive. But I also have to accept the fact that one day he could call me and I could fail as his friend to give him the hope he's looking for for something tomorrow. And if that happens, I'll have to deal with it. But if I thought he was at an end stage, I'd dial 911 and try to get him some help. And that would be all I can do. And I've accepted that. So having people in your life like that. I have a friend that I was in high school with. He was like one of those best friends that's your best friend at school. And I had a hard time making a lot of friends. You might imagine a 14-year-old kid moving to a new high school, you know, 
a thousand miles from where he went to grade school and not knowing anybody might struggle a little bit to find friends. And I really didn't get into the mode where I was, you know, had good friends until I was a junior in high school. But I had a friend in this, this friend named Clint. And, uh, he was a lot like my buddy from the army in, you know, everybody liked him. All the girls liked him. Girls would climb over each other to get to him. And he was my friend when I had no friends. And by the end of our junior year, you know, my circle of friends had expanded, his circle of friends had expanded. We were both in really good places, but we just were the kind of friends that you just didn't really see each other over the summer. And I remember talking to him like the last week of my junior year saying, hey, you know, it's going to be great next year. And I'm saying, yeah, it's going to be great next year. A week before school started, he put a gun to his head and killed himself. I don't know why to this day that individual killed himself. There is no good answer to that question. There were no signs. There, there, there was nothing that anybody could see that looked like it. The story was that he had broken up with a girl. It's possible, but this was a guy that broke up with a girl like once a week so he could go out with a new girl. I, I, I don't really know. But that was a hard loss. And we've all got stories like that. But in the end, you have to understand why people really give up is because they lose focus of the fact that things can be better tomorrow, that there is a future worth living. And that's what we always have to come back to. What do I have? What are my tools? What can I do? What steps can I take? My friend from the military, the last conversation I had with him, he was telling me how his life was completely destroyed, as though he couldn't even see his own opportunities. And I thought, the only thing I can do is get him talking about what he's going to do next. That's the only thing I know to do. And it turned out that when he had been divorced from his last wife, he was completely at fault, but all she wanted to do was get away with him. So she gave him a no-fault divorce, and he kept the house. And if you've paid attention at all to the housing market over the last 10 years, especially here, it's done really well. So he was about to walk away with about $100,000 in cash out of his house. And in spite of screwing a lot of stuff up, he had paid off all his other debt. His father had suggested that he come back to his place in Louisiana. I'm sorry, no, he was walking away about $150,000. And at the amount of money it was, he wasn't going to pay any taxes on it either. With real estate, there's you know you don't pay tax on a lot of money with real estate. That's why it's such a good business. And he had already gone and kind of looked and picked out a mobile home to put on his dad's property. And his dad, this is not like putting it in somebody's backyard. His dad has like 100 acres in the woods in Louisiana. And he had already figured out like he didn't need much. He was going to buy this thing for like $60,000 and still have all the rest of this cash, buy himself a little car, and then have no bills and figure out what to do with himself. Now, I remember this guy for 15 years as we were, when we were really close telling me all the time all he wanted to do was live in the woods and go hunting and fishing every day. And here, he was explaining to me that his big problem was, in spite of the fact that he had lost his wife, that he was finally going to be able to go do what he always wanted to do. As far as I know, that's what he's doing now. And he found a job about an hour away doing technology work. That's his profession. And he has nothing really to worry about now. And the rest of his life, he's, he's like 30 days younger than me. 
to figure out what he wants to do and put his life back together. But I just don't know if he can see it because I don't know that he understands, even at this point, that the future is yet unwritten. And it's when people give up, when they feel there's no more future. And we can all handle the hardships we face if we will stay in touch with that fact that it is up to me what tomorrow will be. And I don't mean to make that sound like a saying or anything. It just came out that way. But it is. It's up to you what tomorrow is going to be like. Even if you're in a place where you're going to say that's not exactly true. Let's say you're incarcerated right now. You're in the prison system. Well, you still have choices to make. And unless you're in for life, there's still that day that you won't be there anymore if you do make the best choices you can. And people say, well, things can, you know, fatalism, like things can happen. I say all the time, tomorrow I could get hit by a gravel truck and be dead or paralyzed, which I think might actually be worse for me. But you can't live your life because something, you know, a different way because something could happen. You have to live your life based on what's most likely to happen. And when you don't like what that is, you need to take actions to change it. And if we do that, we can all better deal with the darkness that we will all face in our lives. And there's a big thing. And I see this so much in people, especially people just bear their lives on Facebook. But I see this in my own family. I see this in my friends. I, I see this everywhere today. Basically, it's it's my parents' fault. It's my parents' fault. With little stupid shit, too. Like, well, why won't you eat that piece of meat I put on your plate? Well, it has millennials, right? It has a bone in it. You do understand that all meat comes off of a bone, and the only difference is it was cut off before you saw it when you ate it before. Yes. Okay, so we don't think meat appears out of nowhere. We understand it comes on a bone. Why won't you eat it? Well, my parents never served it to me that way, and my mom didn't like meat on a bone. Okay. You might think that's a piddly little thing, but here's the thing. It is a piddly little thing. So how the hell, if you can't break that level of psychological conditioning and, and eat a freaking drumstick or a chicken wing or a steak that has the bone in it, how are you going to break the bigger issues? It's all my parents' fault. Here's what I want to say. Once you blame your parents for something, there's only two realities. It really is their fault to a degree, one way or another, or it ain't. You've either made the accusation because it's real, or you've made the accusation to defer it somewhere else. Those are the only two possibilities. And again, if it is their fault, the only question is to what degree. How much of it really stems from that? Here's the good news. Either way, you've assigned blame. You've said it's outside of yourself. It was done by somebody else. So then it's up to you to fix it. And in most instances, the only thing you need to do is immediately begin to act counter to the negative behavior. If it's a stupid little thing, like, I can't eat meat with a bone in it, go get your ass a great big tub of hot wings and slather yourself in sauce and eat it with reckless freaking abandon. Clean yourself up, brush your teeth, and look at yourself in the mirror and realize nothing bad happened. If it's a bigger issue, like... When someone is in pain, I turn away from them. Find the first person you can that's in pain and turn toward them. And no matter what it is, as long as you're sure, 
Like, if it's the reason I don't stand in front of cars doing 100 miles an hour is because my mom told me not to, then your mom was smart and she was right and you shouldn't do that because it's dangerous behavior and it's not good. But if it's they were so worried that something bad would happen, I've been unwilling to take risks, then go find some reasonable risks and take them. And I know it's easier said than done, but you know what's easier... You know what? Doing it is easier then. Not doing it. Not doing it is actually very hard. Very detrimental to your life. It requires an incredible amount of self-beating down, self-control in a negative way, to hold yourself in a pattern that's destructive. It's actually very, very difficult, and it makes you very, very miserable. But you'll do it because you've become comfortable in your misery. It's no different than when, like, you, you learn this whenever you're in some sort of an institutionalized environment. I remember when I was in the Army, and I was in basic training. Oh, by the way, another thing I had to live with, I was in the Army for three years. It took me about three days to realize I made a bad decision joining. For me, it was like the best experience you could have in jail in your life, being in the Army. I had a lot of fun. I drank a lot of alcohol, chased a lot of girls, got to see a lot of cool stuff. But I realized it was a dumb idea that it was just not for me, and I had to fake it to make it for three years. That was a little hard to deal with, right? But I also remember this. like, So you get into basic, and they start screaming at you and all. And, you know, I'm like, eh, whatever. I don't really care if you scream at me or whatever. But as you start moving through it and you, you start going through the physical conditioning, the mental conditioning, the constant beat down because your underwear were one quarter of an inch longer or shorter than they were supposed to be rolled up in your foot locker. So that shit you took all Sunday to do was just turned upside down and kicked across the floor. Like, there's a part of you that says, I can't wait till we're done with this, right? I mean, graduate basic and move on to AIT and have a little bit more freedom and a little bit more autonomy and a little bit less of this. And, of course, AIT, there's still a lot of it, so then it's I can't wait till I'm done with this so I can go to my permanent duty station. And for me, it was also like I can't wait to go to jump school, you know? And in each instance where you completed something, regardless of the fact that it might have been difficult or hard or there were big parts of it you didn't like, we rapidly adapt as human beings to become comfortable. So when we were told you're done with basic and you finished your graduation and, gee, because you picked being a mechanic and that's right here, you're not even going anywhere. You're just basically marching to the other, we'll get on a bus and we'll take you there and then you're going to march your ass to your new barracks, meet your new drill sergeants and start doing your school. Party is really happy about that. The other part of you is apprehensive. This this drill sergeant Arroyo of mine is a tough ass, but now I respect him and I trust him and I understand him. And next thing I know, I got some five foot six inch red haired woman screaming in my face. <laughs> I have no idea who I'm dealing with and what's going to be going on around me. My platoon of sixty has become a class of fourteen. Right? And there's an apprehension there. But by the time you're done with that, and you're like, this is really wasting my time. I could pass all these tests in a week and, and, and learn the few other mechanic, like hands-on things and get off to my unit and learn how to do my job for real. But then by the time you get to the end of that, it's time to leave. Wait a minute, I've gotten comfortable with this. And this happens to prisoners. 
prisoners that want out of prison so bad they wait their you know they do everything they can to get out and yeah, they're happy the day that they walk out to the sun and feel it on their back but yet they become institutionalized they become comfortable even in their misery but we can become comfortable in our misery in life and it gets scary to change it but if not us then who if you won't fix your shit how can you expect that anybody will do it for you Remember I talked about fighting a war? And I said, you, the best wars are the ones you just choose not to fight, but sometimes a war comes to you, and then you have to fight? Well, that war can be psychological. That war can be between you and yourself. The self that knows what it can do, and the self that is comfortable in its misery and is completely miserable. You have to decide which one's going to win. And I'll tell you what, like the old Indian proverb, it'll be the one that you feed, the two wolves... The two wolves, and the one that wins is the one that you feed. And you need to feed the one that believes in tomorrow, constantly. That's the you that can actually change these things. So let's talk about some concrete steps. In my view, again, I'm not a counselor. I don't claim to be one. I don't have a Ph.D. in any of this stuff. I just have life experience, and I've dealt with a lot of crap in my life, and I've seen a lot of people deal with a lot of crap. And... I'm an intelligent person that pays attention, and I know the type of people I've seen rise up out of it. And I know the type of people I've seen fall down into it, and I haven't gone into it, but I have other people that I know that did take their own life. And those people, you know, I saw what they didn't do. I saw what they didn't do. So I think one of the big things, and this is something you'll hear in a lot of self-help blogs and stuff like that, but it's true. Develop a routine in your life. People that have a purpose. When I get up, I'm going to let the dog out. I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to make breakfast. I'm going to put my clothes on. I'm going to bring the dog back into the house. I'm going to go to work. When I go to work, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get my job done. I'm going to go home. On Thursdays, I'm going to go play darts with my friends. Whatever it is, right? And you can get into doldrum of routine, but having a, a core routine and then having open areas around it that you do spontaneous things keeps your life in motion, and that keeps you from getting down into the doldrums. But here's the big thing that I don't ever hear them say, and alter it when you need to. If the behavior of your routine is not advancing your life or causing detrimental things in your life, stop it and do something else. You know, I have a niece right now whose father is just nuts over sports for his kids and thinks his kids are going to get you know, scholarships from it and all. And, and my nephew, the, her older brother, he has a scholarship. He's playing baseball in high school. He does not have a baseball scholarship, though. He has an academic scholarship. And he really harped on that kid about playing football and playing, playing baseball all the way through. Well, this little girl's been playing soccer for like 10 years or something like that. She don't want to play it anymore. Don't want to play doesn't want to play. And he's telling you, you don't want to quit, you don't want to give up, whatever. You know, my advice is, I'm all for quitting things that make you miserable. And go do what you really want to do. She wants to do drama. She wants to volunteer and work with animals. Her passion in life is animals. She wants to pursue veterinary medicine. She may never achieve that, but go after it. And if it leads you somewhere else, so be it. But just because you've always done something and just because it's worked out really well doesn't mean you should keep doing it if it's not conducive to what you want in life. Make those decisions for yourself. The next one is develop skills and self-educate. 
This is something I advise all the time, but I'm telling you it's one of the big things. It's one of the big things that keeps people from falling into the depths of depression. You know what you almost never hear? You know, I'm so depressed, but yesterday I went out and I learned this new skill, and last week I read this incredible book, and it's got me thinking of ways I can adapt it to my life, but I'm so depressed. When people are doing self-education and skill development, it's hard to stay depressed. It really is. It's difficult to, dis- to stay depressed. Because, it op- see, what it does is it opens the door to the future. Every time you learn a new thing, what is the natural human thing to do with that new thing? How can I use this? What does this mean for me? Well, if you're thinking in that tense, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about yesterday? Are you thinking about this second? Or are you thinking about the future, be it the next five minutes, the next five days, the next five years, what have you? You're thinking about the future. The very fact that you're absorbing and utilizing new information and skills forces you to think into the future in a proactive way. And it's actually very difficult to remain in a depressed state if you're being proactive in your, just your, not even your actions, your thoughts about the future. Because it is all in your head. And I know we're not supposed to say that, but For Pete's sake, when we talk about the concept of being depressed in your life, unless there's an actual chemical imbalance, and I do believe that's possible in some mental illness, but unless it's that, and even that's in your head, it just maybe needs some sort of, I am okay with, in some instances, pharmaceutical correction. But if it's not that, and that doesn't mean it's not real, It doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. It doesn't mean your problems don't matter. It doesn't mean your problems aren't real. But the the, the psychology of how you deal with them is all in your brain. Because it's not in mine. It's not in your mom's. It's not in your dog's. It's not in your butler's, right? It's not in, in the guy walking across the street looking at you with a scowl. It's not in your spouse's. It's not in your kids. The only place it can be How you perceive your future is in your head. So I don't mean your problems are all in your head. I mean how you perceive your future has to be in your it, Where else could it be? Before you get angry, I know some of you get angry when I say that. Where else can it be? Where else can it exist? It exists as thought patterns and memories and nuances and neurons in your brain. You can actually affect that. You can make it worse, or you can make it better. Here's the thing. It's the same thing I teach about life. It's a, you know, it's a sliding scale. If you're not moving forward in life, life moves it against you. You can make these things worse by doing nothing wrong because you're doing nothing at all. It, if you have problems with your outlook, if you have problems with darkness, If you have problems with depression, if you have problems with just not wanting to get up and do stuff, if you have problems with that and it gets worse, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It can be that you just aren't doing anything at all. You're not doing anything proactive against it. To focus the mind on the future and focus the mind on what can I do to make tomorrow better than today. But when you start taking that action, it has a cat, it's a catalyst to multiple effects. The brain doesn't want to be in that state. 
The brain doesn't, it doesn't feel good. There's no benefit to it. It's not like people go out and go, you know what? I used to be depressed all the time. I used to think about killing myself once in a while. And I used to not want to get out of bed. I loved that. I wish there was a drug I could take that would make me feel that way. Because I can't do it anymore on my own. Now, it's not that there aren't drugs that can do it, but you get my point, right? You get my point. No one wants to feel that way. The mind doesn't want to feel that way. The body doesn't want to feel that way. Albeit, though, there are people who have so self-identified with the victim mentality. It's not my fault. It's everybody but me. That becomes their identity that they embrace. And they fear letting go of that because that's how they think everybody relates. The only reason I have these people in my life, the only reason they listen to me, the only reason they're part of my life, the only reason they love me, is because of my victimization. Now, they don't think that consciously. It's very subconscious. It's in the id. But that's, that's why they cling to it. Without this, what would I have? And since my life is shit, if I'm not a victim... Holy shit, it's my fault, and I can't face that. And if I can do anything to make it better, it's my fault. And if you tell me I can do something to make it better, you're saying it's my fault. No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's your fault where you are. I am saying if you don't try to make it better, it is your fault that you stay there or it gets worse. If you try and fail, it's not your fault. You just need to keep trying again. But if you do nothing through inaction, or you take further actions to further entrench yourself into these negative states, then that is your fault because that is your choice. It is your choice. I think another big thing, you have to learn to be happy when you are alone. One of the reasons my friend from the military that I talk about is so miserable in his life, he has never been able to be alone. This man wanted to be married no i mean more than any other person i've ever known he wanted to be married he needed a woman in his life or he felt incomplete and i don't mean in the way that like there's a positive way that that can be like i have everything but i need someone to share it with to complete it that's that's healthy i mean i'm shit until i have a woman in my life all you're going to get is codependency All you're going to get is codependency, and you're going to find a mate that thinks the same way. Because they're the only one that will tolerate and deal with your shit in that codependency because they have to be part of the co in the codependency. The only way you can branch out and have really strong relationships is you have to be able to go through that routine, build your life, do your self-study, take your dog for a walk, go fishing, whatever it is, go to the library, completely alone. When you can do that, Then you're ready to have someone join your life. Now, I'm not talking about miserable solitude. Because there are people that well, I'm, I'm alone all the time and I'm okay with it. Are you doing good shit in your life? Because if you are, great. But if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're telling me you have these problems and you're alone all the time and you can't be happy being alone, you got to work through that. Or you have no future with anybody in your life, including friends other than codependency. Because I don't know if you've ever been around people that are really, really negative but it will drag your energy down so quickly. And generally, we only stay in interactions with people like that when they're family or when they're long-term friends and we feel a moral obligation to help them. But when you meet a new person and that person sounds like Eeyore the donkey from freaking Winnie the Pooh, 
you run away. And if you don't, freaking start. Okay? You, cause you, you, you cannot fix a person in that state. They have to figure out how to fix themselves. They have to figure out how to fix themselves. And you're not a professional. I'm not a professional. We're not qualified to do it. And, and, and it, you will generally run away because it's like an energy suck. You start talking to the person and you feel like, like, like some kind of energy vampire thing is attached to you. And it's sucking energy out of your body. People that can't be happy alone always do that on one level or another. They attach themselves to people. And they basically give me energy. And generally the only relationships they form are people that go, I will give you mine if you give me yours. It's codependency. It's basic. Psych 101 stuff there. But on the other hand, talk to people. Family, friends, strangers, etc. You have to talk to people. And I talk, I mean that in your daily life. Be a, we're social creatures. We're designed to communicate with each other. Right? But I also mean like if you're having problems, then get professional counseling. And anybody that would feel embarrassed to get professional counseling, I would ask you, would you feel embarrassed to take an aspirin when you had a headache? No, because you have a problem. The aspirin is a solution to that problem. It is not your fault that you have a headache. And even if it is your fault, the aspirin is a means by which to treat the headache. That's counseling. If it's not your fault, then you, but, you, but you can't fix it, then you need help to fix it. If it is your fault, you probably need more help to fix it because clearly you do not know what you're doing. Because it's your fault. That means you made it that way. It's going to be very hard for you to fix it. And get help when you need help. And if you talk to somebody and think they're not helping me, get somebody else. I've tried. Did you really? You gotta make a commitment to try. You gotta want to feel better. You gotta want to change your future or it's not gonna happen. You gotta want it. The best counselors, in my opinion, are the ones that figure out what it will take to start making you think about what you want. And what it will take then to get you to start taking some steps toward that. Because a lot of times when people say, well, I want to get better, or I want to feel better. That's not really very specific. It doesn't really address the problem. Why do you feel bad? Why do you feel depressed? Why do you feel like ending your life is an option when you're 25 years old and you have your whole life in front of you, you're not terminally ill, you're not in a building that's on fire, and you're not in prison? Because you didn't get good grades in college? Who gives a shit? Because some girl that you went out with doesn't want to talk to you anymore? Who cares? I've been through lost relationships. I know how bad it hurt. But in the end, that's where I came out on the other side of it. And the quicker you can get there, the better. You have, you're 25. I think it's reasonable to assume if you take care of yourself, it's very reasonable that people today can live to be 100 years old. We think 75 years in the future and the advancements that are being made, 100 is a pretty reasonable target. No guarantee, but it's, it's possible. So you have a potential 75 years to do shit with your life, to impact other people. And you're worried that someone doesn't like you? You're worried because you failed at something? Who gives a fuck? Seriously. I mean, I think we need to make that a catchphrase. I know I don't say it on the air a lot, but I mean, seriously, there's so many times where people are like, well, this and that, like, who gives a fuck? Who cares? How does that really impact your life? 
Some arbitrary person's opinion? Some arbitrary grade that no one's ever going to pay attention to? Do you still believe in your permanent record from, from freaking you know, elementary school? Because I saw Sasquatch with a satchel with your permanent record in it, riding a freaking rainbow over the freaking mountain, right? Like, that, that, that was a mythical, fake thing that society hoisted on you. Well, that's affected the way I view everything. Okay, great. Now you've identified it. Now you have to make a choice. Now you have to make a choice. And one of those choices is my next step. You have to avoid toxic people, friends, family, etc., I just said talk to people, friends, family, etc. Well, you have to avoid toxic people, even if they're friends and family. If there's someone feeding your problems, if there's someone like that girl in your life, you got to get away from them. I don't care how much you think you need them. You don't need them. You need somebody else in your life. If you're talking to somebody and say, sometimes I think about ending my life, and they go, well, maybe you should. Okay, that's, that is like time to find a new friend. It usually won't be that blatant. But when if you have a problem with substance abuse, and you say, I really think I need to lay off the, the alcohol, and they say, yeah, but let's go out and have one drink. No. No. If you're in a relationship and you say, I really feel like I need to get up and do something, and they say, ah, let's just lay in today and forget about it. And you know that's a problem, and that's, that's been recurrent. You need to get out of that relationship. If you're saying, I want to go out and pursue this dream, and you have a parent saying, you know, there's no future in that, that doesn't mean you sever all relationship with the parent, but that piece of it is now dead. Well, that, I'm, I'm, I've taken your opinion. I'm glad you feel that way. I'm going to go out and do it anyway. And when you bring it up, we're not going to talk about it. My daughter-in-law. When she was in high school and trying to figure out what to do with her future, she wanted to go into marine biology. Something we have in common. It was something, herpetology and marine biology were both things I was very much into as a kid. And she still feels like, boy, I still wish I would have done that. She's 28. We were talking, she was over the house tonight because my son's still working bartending shifts on Saturdays because it's good money. And uh, so she, some Saturday she comes and hangs out with us instead of staying with the kids at the house alone. And she, we were watching Shark Week, right? Because that was what was on. And she loves the sharks. And she, she brought that up. I said, well, if that's what you want to do, go do it. It's too late. What the hell is it too late? You know what night school is, don't you? You can take a course at a time. You could at least explore it. You could build a blog encouraging children to go into it and pursue independent study in it. Like, like no one had ever said those things. But when I'm telling you, when some when you have a dream that you want to pursue, and somebody says, "Ah, there's no money in it," like, what the hell does this 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 girl's mother know? There's no money in a, being a marine biologist. Are you an idiot? Seriously, you have to be a freaking idiot. There's money in just about anything that anybody ever wanted to do. But all the people teaching it, I'm sorry to tell you, they get a salary. You have to separate, if not completely from toxic people, because let's say it's not, it's not pragmatic for most people to separate from their parents. However, I did it because it was pragmatic. It was the best decision I could make. And I hope you never come down to that level. But you have to separate from parents even, siblings even, best friends even, spouses even. If you want to pursue something that's a reasonable thing to pursue... And they tell you, you can't do it. 
Because that person does not have your best interest at heart. Because they don't know if you can do it, and you don't know if you can do it, and you don't know what the pursuit will lead to. I mentioned that my niece wants to go to, to medical, uh, veterinary medical school. I don't know that she'll make it through there, but I know if she takes that path and follows her passion, she'll figure out what she really wants to do. That's called faith in a person. And when a person doesn't exhibit faith in you, and it's a reasonable area where faith could be extended, you have to sever that, at least that piece of that relationship. And when they bring it up, you have to say, you know, we're not going to talk about that. You have to be strong enough to do that. And it can be a difficult thing to do. You also have to stop conflating responsibility with blame. I kind of hit on that already, but so many people I see do that, and that's why they can't fix their shit. Okay, you tell somebody like, well, you know, here's the things you can do to fix this, and the first thing they want to start doing is saying, well, you're blaming me for my problem. It may be your fault, but it is irrelevant whether it's your fault or not to whether or not you have the responsibility to fix it. Let's say that through no fault of your own, you're severely injured. And there is a person who maliciously caused that injury. They even get prosecuted for it, and they're in jail. You can't sue them for money because they don't have anything. Now, you are seriously injured. You have to go through rehab to get physically well again so that you can function in society again. You can't walk right. You've put on a bunch of weight because you couldn't be active. Okay. Is it your fault? No. Okay. Let me ask you this then. Whose responsibility is it to fix it? To do whatever is necessary to be better than the state you're in now? Is it God's responsibility? Because God doesn't work that way no matter what you believe about God. Is it the responsibility of the person who victimized you? No. And the reason it's not their responsibility is it's impossible for them to fix it. If they stole your stuff then we could have the concept of restitution. Your stuff could be returned to you, or the economic value in cash could be returned to you. And then I would say, yes, on some level, it is their responsibility. But when it's an emotional thing or a physical thing that's you and you alone, whether or not it is your fault, it is still your responsibility because through the process of elimination, there is no one else that can be responsible for it. A person that's responsible to do something has to be capable of doing it. In other words, it is not your responsibility, it is not your responsibility to solve the problems in the Middle East. Not your responsibility. I know maybe the TV is convincing you that by paying attention you're somehow paying homage to that responsibility. It's not, because you don't have the capability to do so. Now, you may come up with an opportunity to do something that would help somebody there, and you may feel that is a responsibility for you to, to do. But it's not your responsibility to fix it because you can't. Because you can't. There's nothing you can do to fix it. Now, if you've done something wrong, there's a place for remorse, for apology, and for attempting to do some level of justice to the person that you've wronged. But it's still not your responsibility to fix their mental state, not because you didn't cause it, but because you can't do it. You can't do it. So if you are screwed up mentally because your mother was a bitch, or you're screwed up mentally because you made a bunch of bad decisions, 
One's your fault, one's not. In both instances, it's still your responsibility to deal with it. Back again one more time, because some of you need to hear this like a two-by-four in the head, because you're the only one that can. So when you conflate being responsible to deal with a situation and being responsible for it happening, then you become paralyzed and you're unable to correct it because the very action of correction and getting better at whatever it is or in whatever way that it is seems to indicate you admitting guilt in your head. Let go of that shit. Again, because you're the only one that can. Next. This will be the one that's not as concrete and some people maybe won't, won't get But it's true, and I can't not say something that's true anymore that I can say something that's not true. Okay, And that is, remember what you really are. You are spirit. You are spirit. You are not your body. You are not your hair. You're not your eye color. You're not your bones and your organs. That's a vessel for spirit. You are consciousness, if that's an easier word for you. You are flowing, moving, living energy. Remember I said I lost my faith, but I lost my faith in organized religion. I didn't lose my faith in the reality of the eternalness of the universe. You are spirit. You are consciousness. And you control your spirit and your consciousness more so than any other force on the planet. And if you will make the conscious decision to see yourself as spirit and to realize the amazing capabilities of your mind and how they can act through your body, how the amazing abilities of your mind and your spirit can act through your words, then your life will improve. I'm not going to say it's going to be perfect. I'm not going to say that you're going to get everything you want. That's what TV preachers that want you to send the money say. I'm telling you, it can be better than where you are. That doesn't mean you won't get knocked back from, you know, further than where you're at right now. I mean, for the love of God. If, if I go take a drive today and I get a car accident and I end up drinking through a straw, drinking my food through a straw for three months, it's going to screw my life up. To say it won't is just hogwash and nonsense. But even in that state, even if I can't get back to where I am now, I can be better than I am in that state. I can do something to help myself and to help other people. And I think that's a big thing. When you're not sure what to do to help yourself, look around and find somebody else and help them. Go volunteer. Go do something. Go do something for somebody else. Take a kid fishing. You know? Go find a habitat for humanity and build houses. Go meet people. And this is the most important one. And it's really all of these things have been saying this. But I've been saying this forever. It's one of my tenets of modern survival living. Remember, what you do matters. And I want to tell you a story about how big a deal that really is when somebody hears it and believes it. I've been doing the show a few years, and I did an expo in Denver, Colorado. A man walked up to me and introduced himself to me. He looked like a very, very happy man. Looked like he had his life really going well. And in the middle of this public place, with other people in earshot, I mean, this guy must have come a long way. 
said, I'm here to tell you that I owe you my life. How do you respond to that other than, okay, can you explain that? I mean, talk about a humbling thing. A person you've never met before tells you that. Like, you don't even know where. Like, and the other thing is, like, party is like, is the guy nuts? Because, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, I've met some pretty nutty people in my travels, right? Uh, being a public personality, you know, there's some percentage, especially in survivalism and all that are, yeah, fringe, right? And, but, you know, <laughs> tell me, you know. So, you know, I started listening to you a couple of years ago. I'm a returning war vet. Didn't know what to do with myself. Couldn't really find a job I liked. Ended up divorced. I've got my kids. I'm taking care of them. My wife doesn't even want them. But I found your show. Put a garden in the backyard. Started doing some of the things you talk about. Started working with the kids. And I listened to everything you said. And it helped some, but not enough. And I still constantly thought about ending my life. But you had said a lot of times what you do matters. And one night I sat in my bed with my gun in my mouth. And the words that wouldn't go away, the words I couldn't get rid of, were what you do matters. And all I could think of is my kids and that what I did mattered. And if what I did mattered meant anything, then this wasn't the thing to do. And as we continued to talk, his life had gotten really good. He'd become really optimistic. It wasn't perfect. But he was no longer that being, that broken spirit. He was a new man. Now, I don't actually get the credit. There could have been a hundred different people that said a hundred different things, and if he was willing to hold on, he would have found one of those to hold on for. But for him, that was the one. And I think it is the most important thing for us to understand if we are going to deal with dark situations. Whether those situations are clinical, psychological, or life-based horrible things. If you were abducted and locked in a room, and afraid that the money's going to come back and kill you. How important is it to think at that moment, what I do matters? What are my tools? What are my options? How can I deal with this? And if you have to fight right up to the end and you don't make it, you still you use every moment you have, as long as you believe in the potential for tomorrow. And again, remember that. That's when people lose hope. That's when people really give up. When they can't see tomorrow. When they can't see tomorrow being even 1% better than it is now, and they're completely miserable today. And that's why when people get to end-of-life decisions, sometimes they choose to die. Even if they were you know, a happy person. Like, there's just no way out. Or when criminals commit crimes, and they, they're, they're in big trouble. And they're holed up somewhere. And the police get to them. And they, they're going to raid them. And they'll commit suicide by cop. Sometimes those people were on the run for years. They had plenty of time to put a gun in their head. But once they realized, like, it's over. I have no hope. And even then, it's not really over. And it's not that they don't have any hope. But once you... But see, that's the thing. It's perception is reality. When you perceive that you have no hope, your mind can't tell you that you do. 
It's an internal conflict. And again, it's about which you do you feed. Do you feed the you that is spirit and knows that it is spirit? And I guess my final thoughts on this, to everybody out there, and this isn't just about people dealing with depression or even deep darkness or potential suicide. This is every one of you, especially this young generation. You have so much opportunity. Use it. For God's sakes, use it. Do you know how many people have come before you and worked hard to build the reality that we live in today? With all of these opportunities, there has never been a time in history. There has never been a time in history with more opportunities for people to live incredible lives. Whether it be through building a business or just exploring the world. Or just learning. Or teaching. Or just finding a little place that you're content with because that's what you want. There's never been a time where it's been more accessible and easier. Never. We can wax nostalgically about what it would have been like to live on the frontiers. And here's the real reality. In most instances, it would have sucked. It would have sucked. To live as a hunter-gatherer, when you're getting chomped by a bear or a saber-toothed cat, or you get an infection and you die because nobody even understands what an antibiotic is, When you wanted to go somewhere, it took days or weeks or months to do something we can do in minutes to hours now? When you wanted to learn something, you had to seek out some sage somewhere across the world, maybe get on a ship and risk dying of dysentery, to learn something that you can Google now? I know there's debt and there's problems and the world sucks and wham! But you are a being of spirit, and you have the ability to adapt to your situation and make it better. And when you do that, you will find limitless opportunities, and your biggest problem in life will be figuring out what you most want to do. Rather than figuring out what to do, you'll have to say, well, if I'm going to do this now, I'll have to do this later. Which one do I want to do more? Not a bad problem to have. No matter how bad things seem, If you can still fog a mirror, you still have an opportunity to influence your future. And if you have any opportunity to influence it, you have an opportunity to make it better. Please remember that. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. tspaz.com will show you the reviews that we put out every day, and it will give you some links. And if you use those links when you shop online, You can help us no matter what you buy, as long as you shop through tspaz.com. And, again, if you're in the United States, Canada, or the U.K., that applies to you. Uh, kind of a deep, sad subject today, so I kind of like the fact that my item of the day will let me talk about something that's really kind of happy, because I love to cook. I mean, that's one of the things I've tried to become over the years is a better cook. And, you know, sometimes you get depressed because you work really hard on something and it comes out like ass, right? Uh, and what I want to talk about today is not just how to make good food, but great food and make great food even better using a simple little tool that is my item of the day. It is the Microplane Classic Zester Grater. Now, what is this? It looks like a file, and it's basically a really fine grater. It looks like a rasp is what it really looks like. And it'll do things like zest an orange and take only the orange part off. So you get that orange flavor in the oils without taking any of the white, uh, bitter stuff. Or it'll make really fine-grated hard Parmesan cheese or really fine-grated chocolate. And it's nine bucks. Eight-some. 
And I want to kind of explain to you, like, and this is like learning, right? And this is fun. And this is how you, like, figure out what you're going to do next is, is by learning things that are possible. So I want to go about two things that I put in my review that you can do with this that takes something good and makes it great. So let's talk about doing some, 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 some uh, sautéed vegetables. Let's say we're going to do some peppers, zucchini, mushrooms, and carrots. We slice up a big handful of green onion on a bias. That means like on an angle. If you want to see how to do that, there's a link in the show in the, the review. And then some, add some olive oil to a pan. Season your vegetables with salt and pepper. Saute your carrots for a minute or two. We're going to do it in an order here because the different vegetables take different lengths of time to cook, and we don't want to overcook some. So we'll do the carrots about a minute or two. Then we're going to add the peppers and the mushrooms and saute for about three minutes. And then we're going to toss the zucchini in and saute for about another minute. And you can adjust those you know, to your thing. Then you're going to shut off the heat. Add most of the green onions and stir in and serve, right? So you don't wanna, you don't cook those green onions really at all. You just want to let the heat kind of wilt them a little bit in there. And but what about we use this little zester and some cheat codes? Is what I call it, cheat codes for cooking to elevate this to gourmet level. Well, what you do is when you start out and do all those other things, this time you grate up some fine ginger and garlic and lime zest. And you add these into your saute pan when you add the peppers and mushrooms because we don't want to burn the garlic and what have you. Okay. Then when you serve the dish, take your reserved green onions and put them on top of it once it's on the plate, when you've plated it, and then take a bit of some Parmigiano Reggiano, right? Some real Parmesan. High grade, good stuff. I got a link for that too in this uh, review. And just just really fine zest a little bit on top of it. All of a sudden, you've gone from good to great. Here's another one. Take a whole chicken, cut the backbone out. Um, cut the wingtips off. Reserve those. Flatten the chicken out, rub it with oil. Season both sides of salt, pepper, thyme, and ro uh, rosemary. Parboil some potatoes so they're like half cooked, so that they'll, they'll be done by the time this is all done with. Then build a bed in a roasting pan with the potatoes, an onion chopped coarse, some carrots and celery, Place the bird on the veggies, skin side up, and roast the oven 425 till the chicken's done. Probably about an hour and 15 minutes. Okay? Now, that sounds great. And to make it even better, before we get to the cheat codes, while you're roasting the chicken, um, boil the chicken back, the chicken wingtips, the neck and the heart and the liver, all this awful that came with it. And into that, you're going to add salt, pepper, celery, carrots to make a stock. Do this with about four cups of water and add one to two teaspoons of better-than-bullion chicken base to it or regular bullion if you don't have the better-than-bullion, but you should. Strain your stock and then use a flour and butter roux to make that into a gravy. So we're going to mix equal parts of flour and water. For that much, probably about four to five tablespoons of each. We melt the butter down. We mix that up until we cook the flour. We add the stock back in. It makes a gravy. Okay, so you serve that, you got your vegetables, you got your chicken, you got your gravy, homemade gravy, fantastic, easy, one and a half hour prep time maximum. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's easy to do. And it's easy to take care of the gravy because the chicken's going to spend so much time in the oven, just, you know, you're not really doing anything while the chicken roasts. Um, here's your cheat codes, though. Use the zester when you're getting the chicken ready and zest two lemons, four cloves of garlic, and rough chop some fresh basil and parsley. Mix the thyme, rosemary with the basil, parsley, garlic, and lemon zest to make a paste out of it because it'll be wet. Then gently separate the skin and stuff this paste in between the skin, between the skin and the meat under the breast skin and under the thigh skin. Use about 75% of the paste this way. 
Then oil and season the chicken as before, but also rub the remaining part of this paste that you've made onto the skin. Place on the veggie bed, and then take your two lemons and squeeze the juice on top of your chicken and vegetables. And now with a little fresh herbs, garlic, lemon, proper use of this tool, you've gone from good meal to gourmet dinner. Totally changes everything. Just simple little additions. That's why I do these reviews, so that you can not just like learn about cool stuff, but learn about the cool techniques to use the stuff to make your life better. Cooking's great. I said, talked about, you know, today, learning skills. Man, one of the greatest skill sets you can teach yourself and teach your kids and teach your spouse and teach your friends and family is how to cook really great. And, I mean, there's so much available. Opportunity, YouTube. Man, there's so much available today. Um, I don't have a YouTube channel for you today, but I'm going to reiterate Brothers Green Eats. Man, I've been hooked on these guys. Uh, and their channel, not every video I really like, but a lot of them are really, really cool. And I think for like I think for a lot of you guys, you might get more out of them than me because you learn these core techniques. That that's what they're really seem to be good at is going to these core techniques and, and different really cool stuff. So Brothers Green Eats love as a stand-in channel of the day. So that brings us to our song of the day. And man, I'm telling you, there's something going on here with John Adam with picking these songs and matching these episodes with no idea of what they're going to be. Uh, and there was no way he could have, because I didn't know what I was going to talk about today until yesterday when I finished up yesterday's show. The song he picked was I Am, I Said, I Am, I Said, by Neil Diamond. And uh, here's what he, here's his one little note with me, and he has a link to Song Facts, but he says, At the risk of my man card being revoked, I admit that I like a lot of Neil Diamond's music. I have never considered myself a Neil Diamond fan. I really haven't. But you know what I've always thought? Whenever I've heard him, I've never been like, I hate him. You know, it's like, I just don't get really excited about it, but I've always thought he was very, very talented as a singer and songwriter. Uh, just maybe not completely to my taste, but this song was huge. And, you know, as soon as I heard it, I was like, yeah, I remember that song. I remember that song was big. I am that old. But here's what it says about this song on Song, song Facts. David Wilde, author of He Is, I Say... How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love, Neil Diamond, told us Neil began the song after doing a screen test to play rebel comedian Lenny Bruce in a film. Feeling he had failed, Neil was thrown into something of an existential, existential funk and started the song. It would take months for him to finish the song, but in the end it would become a classic. One postscript, around 2000, Neil allowed me to see the failed screen test that set him off. And I was surprised to see that after all of that, he was really wonderful in the part. Still, things worked out pretty well for Neil. Neil Diamond told Q Magazine in July of 2008 that he had to write this autobiographical song to, quote, find myself. Diamond added, it was a tough thing for me to gather myself after singing that song. You can read the rest on Song Facts if you want to look it up. But I think what you're seeing here is that here's a guy that's, that's already successful. And he went and tried to do something, you know, out of his wheelhouse. Like many musical artists, he went and tried to do, try his, you know, hand at acting. And uh, he actually did a great job at it. But somebody said he wasn't good enough and it sent him into a depression. Now, you know, I guess he worked through it and got his life back together and made something really great out of it, and there's a lesson in that. But do you know how many people out there are miserable because someone else said they weren't good enough or someone else has a negative opinion about what they're doing? 
This is why sometimes I hear from you guys, this is my idea for a business. What do you think about it? And I think, like, unless you're telling me something really, really, really stupid, what I think is irrelevant, what you're able to do with it is what matters. I think we put way too much emphasis on what other people think about us and what other people say about us. We make decisions to not pursue a dream because someone tells us it won't work for you or that's not a worthy dream of having. Go do something simple and safe. We have children that sit at home and cry because kids in their school said that they were ugly or stupid or a dork or whatever. We have been conditioned to behave like domesticated creatures that really cares what people we don't even know that have no real effect on our future think about us and we're unwilling to see the value that we have and that everything in our future really is about what we do. That while there's no guarantees as to what we'll get, there's a guarantee that we can get something if we try. I think this song talks a lot about that. Well done, John Adam. And no, I will not revoke your man card because you like Neil Diamond. Though, kind of summing up the whole thing, I don't believe anybody individually has the authority to revoke anybody's man card in the first place. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life, times get tough, or even if they don't. is fine, the sun shines most of the time And the feeling is laid back Palm trees grow and rents are low But you know, keep thinking about Making my way back Well, I'm New York City, born and raised But nowadays I'm lost between two shores It's fine, but it ain't home New York's home, but it ain't mine no more I am myself To no one there And no one heard at all Not even the chair I cried. I am, said I, and I am lost, and I can even say why. Leaving me lonely still. Did you ever read about a frog who dreamed of being a king And then became one Well, except for the names and a few other changes If you talk about me The story's the same one But I got an emptiness deep inside That I've tried, but it won't let me go
And I'm not a man who likes to swear But I never cared for the sound of being alone I am, I said To no one there And no one heard at all Not even the chair I cried I am, said I And I am 